Let's all imagine you're in high school as a high school student. One day, you and your best friend are walking home from school. Then, two bullies from school approach you both and start teasing your friend. Apparently, it was because your friend had seen them graffiti the toilet wars and told the teacher about it, and they got into trouble because of it. The bullies push you to the side and say, None of your business, mate. Get out of here. And they escalate the situation and they start physically beating up your friend. Your friend tries to fight back, but clearly can't take on those two massive boys and is getting beat up really badly. Your friend looks at you and cries for help. Help. Help me. You know you need to protect your friend, but at the same time you know how strong these two bullies are and the damage they could do to you. So, do you be honourable and protect your friend and fight the bullies? Or don't get involved and survive a beating? What would you do in this situation? G'day everyone, I'm your host Stephen, and welcome to another episode of the Bamboo History Podcast. For those of you who don't know what the Bamboo History Podcast is, The Bamboo History Podcast is a podcast about Chinese and East Asian history. Please subscribe to my podcast if you like this type of content. Follow my Instagram at Bamboo History Podcast and check out my new website, bamboohistorypodcast.com. Today's episode will be exciting because it will be a Korean history special. In the scenario I just mentioned, Today's history topic involves a dilemma where a king faced a decision of upholding his duty and being honourable, or stay away from trouble and preserve his country. What dilemma was this? What ended up happening? Who is this king? Hold your kimchi jjigae, because today you're going to be hearing about the story of the famous Korean king, Gwanghaegun. Before I begin this episode, I wanted to say thanks to another history podcaster, PastPod, who gave me this suggestion. Veronica of PastPod does some amazing content on history of famous people who almost became king and queen. Do check out Veronica's podcast, it's really good. Her podcast is PastPod, that's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D, PastPod. Thanks again, Veronica. This topic was definitely a really good one to research and learn about. Just a disclaimer, there'll be some references to Korean words and phrases. I'm not a native Korean speaker, so for those of you who are Korean speakers, if I'm destroying the pronunciation, I sincerely apologise in advance. Now, let's get straight into it. Gwanghaegun was a Korean king during the early 17th century. He was the 15th king of the Joseon dynasty, Joseon spelt J-O-S-E-O-N, which was the dynasty that ruled Korea at the time. In East Asian culture, when a monarch dies, they are given a temple name, 
which is the name for the people to use to honour and worship that monarch for generations to come. For example, Sejong, Seonjo, and Injo are temple names of these respective kings. However, there are two kings in the Joseon dynasty that were not given temple names. These two kings were Yeonsangun, who was the 10th ruler of the Joseon dynasty, and Gwanghaegun. Yeonsangun was noted to be a very cruel and despotic ruler who wreaked havoc on the country, and because he was so dishonourable and poor as a leader, he was not given a temple name. Gwanghaegun, on the other hand, was not a cruel or despotic leader. In fact, some even say that he was a good ruler that rebuilt the country after times of war. So why was he not honoured after death with a temple name? That would have been fit for a king like him, right? Well, to find out about this answer, let's talk about the life of Gwanghaegun, shall we? In the year 1575, a little Korean baby was born. And that baby would grow up to be one of the most influential, if not controversial leaders that changed the course of Korean history. This baby's name was Yihon, spelt Y-I-H-O-N, which was the birth name of Gwanghaegun. Yihon was the second son of King Seonjo, spelt S-E-O-N-J-O, and his concubine, Lady Kim Gong-bin. From what we know, Yihon did not have a great childhood. When he was just two years old, he lost his mother to illness. He was also distant from his father, King Seonjo, who had many other sons and hence could not divert lots of attention to him in particular. The early days for Yihon were very tough. When he was 17 years old, Japan launched a full-scale invasion on Joseon, Korea. This invasion and subsequent conflict between the two nations is known in Korean as the Imjin War. And this is definitely a war I will cover in a future episode, because I think it's really interesting. The point is, during this conflict, the Japanese had overpowered Korea on land and caused lots of destruction on Korean soil and lots of suffering for the Korean people. His father, Seonjo, was a weak leader, and instead of leading the fight against the Japanese invaders, he just ran off, and that left the young Yihon, who was only 18 at the time, as the de facto leader of the country. With absolutely no experience in ruling a country, he got thrown straight into the deep end, leading his country in the middle of a war. Can you imagine leading your country at 18 years old in a war? Especially since you've been thrown that job because your old man wasn't willing to take on the responsibility. But Yihon did it, and he succeeded. He led the Korean people to victory over Japan in the year 1598, when the Japanese finally retreated from Korea. And Yihon became popular amongst the Korean people for his bravery and leadership during the war. Seonjo returned as king when the Imjin War was over, but by now he was old and his health was failing. He needed a successor to the throne. Seonjo 
knew that Yihon was a capable ruler because he demonstrated that during the war, and thus he was named the successor. However, Yihon's position to succeed wasn't solid. He had contention from two of his brothers. The first was his older brother, Prince Imhe. The reason why some argued he could have been the successor was that he was Sionjo's firstborn son. Under Confucian ideology, which was followed by Korea at the time, the firstborn son should have been the rightful person to take over the throne. The issue with Prince Imhe was, he was known to be a very arrogant and violent person, and because of that, he was overlooked for the throne. The second brother was Prince Yongchang. He was Yihon's younger brother. Even though he wasn't obviously the firstborn son, the main reason that people supported him as the successor was that Yongchan was born to the queen who was the official wife of Sionjo, whereas Yihon was born to a concubine who was of lower status than the queen. Different groups of people in Joseon's upper class supported each of these three candidates, Imhe, Yihon, and Yongchang. Now, this is where we'll need to digress a little bit and talk about the political factionalism that existed in the Joseon aristocracy at the time. The Joseon political system was heavily influenced by Neo-Confucianism, and the government during the Joseon period was structured in a way where the Joseon king would co-govern the country with the council of his ministers, rather than the Joseon king having absolute power of the governance of Korea. The reason why the Joseon king did not have absolute power, in my opinion, is stemmed from their status as a Chinese tributary and a vassal state of the Ming dynasty of China. Ming spelt M-I-N-G. As a vassal state, Joseon Korea had to acknowledge the Chinese mandate of heaven, and the fact that the Emperor of China was the ultimate ruler. If the Emperor of China commanded the Joseon King and the Korean people to do something, they would need to do it. It was Joseon Korea's duty to follow the Ming dynasty, and going against the wishes of the Chinese would be dishonourable. The king of Joseon was not the ultimate power as a result, and so long as they played the part of a vassal state and submitted to the Chinese emperor, then they would be able to freely rule Korea. Hence, the Korean king did not have ultimate authority, and this enabled a creation of a co-governance system in Joseon Korea. Listeners, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about this. In the early Joseon period, the co-governance system in Korea worked well. However, around the 1500s, from the mid-Joseon period onwards, the power tilted in favour of the ministers and the other aristocrats and away from the king. Professor Yi Tae-jin theorised that a reason for this was, in a bid to curb the power of the eunuchs, the Joseon government heavily encouraged ministers to participate in the ruling of the country with the king, as well as educating the king on how to rule. This was done so by introducing royal lectures, also known as Kyongyong in Korean, spelt K 
K-Y-O-N-G-Y-O-N. And essentially, the royal lectures was to have scholars and officials educate the king on how to rule. But the direct result of that was the weakening of the king's power because the king became overly reliant on his subjects because they were teaching him and influencing him on how to rule the country. The growing power of the king's subjects became a problem during the middle of the Joseon period, and that's when the factions began to form. Developed through contrasting ideologies and beliefs on how to rule the country, This is very similar to modern-day left and right politics, albeit the time in Joseon it was a lot violent. Out of the political infighting and factionalism emerged a very powerful faction called the Sarim, spelt S-A-R-I-M. The Sarim faction was influenced by the Song dynasty Confucian philosophers Cheng Yi and Zhu Xi. The Sarim faction were initially purged for their Neo-Confucian beliefs and the questioning of the Choson authority. And because of that, they retreated into the countryside and gradually built up their power there. By the late 16th century, the Sarim faction became the dominant political power in Korea. This was when the Sarim faction then split into different sub-factions. First, the Sarim faction split into the Eastern and Western faction. Then, the Eastern faction further split into the Northern and Southern faction. And then, within the Northern faction, they made a further split into the Small Northern and the Great Northern faction. And no, the Great Northern faction did not drink Great Northern beer. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, Great Northern beer is an Australian beer brand. It's really nice. Anyway, so now we've got all these different sub-factions within the Sarim faction. You've got the Western faction, Northern and Southern faction. You've got Eastern and Western, Northern and Southern, and Small Northern and Great Northern. The reason why the Northern faction split into the Small Northern and the Great Northern was because of disagreements on who would succeed Sionjo as the king. So now let's go back to the Joseon succession crisis. The Great Northerners supported Yihon, also known as Prince Gwanghae. The Small Northerners supported Prince Yongchang. And the Small Northerners, in order to stop Yihon from ascending the throne, actually stole the documents that had nominated Yihon as the successor. Talk about these guys being small and petty, right? But the Great Northerners found out and executed the person that stole these documents. Besides the small northerners, the Ming Chinese government also did not support Xionzhou's decision to appoint Yihon as the successor. Main reason being, he was not the eldest son, and it would be a breach of Confucian values. The point is, when Yihon ascended the throne, there were groups of people out there that weren't too happy and would never support him throughout his rule as king, which would cause troubles later on. So Yihon, the Prince Gwanghae, ascended the Joseon throne in the year 1608 at the age of 33. He then became known as Gwanghae-gun, spelt G-W-A-N-G-H-A-E-H-U-N. When Gwanghae-gun first became king, Korea had been decimated by Japan during the Imjin War. 
and hence he led the reconstruction of Korea. He restored many documents that were destroyed during the war, and rebuilt palaces and buildings that were destroyed. He also restored relations with Japan. In 1609, Korea and Japan signed the Treaty of Giyu, G-I-Y-U, to allow Koreans to trade with Japan on the island of Tsushima. During the early Joseon period, Koreans had used an identification system called Hope, spelt H-O-P-A-E. These were ID tags carried by civilians showing their name, date of birth, and their place of birth. The Hope had fallen into disuse during the mid-1400s, but King Gwanghegun revived the use of Hope during his reign. He also implemented a tax law called Dedong to make taxes more fairer and easier to pay for civilians. And also a fun fact, in the year 1616, eight years into his reign, tobacco was first introduced into Korea. His rule, as you can see, seems fairly good. At least a lot better than Yonsangun, right? He led the Koreans during a war and then proceeded to restore the country after the war ended. So what led to his fall from grace? Why was he never given a temple name after his death? It all came down to a couple of reasons. The first one was that, in his reconstruction efforts, he focused a lot on rebuilding the palaces, for example the Changdok Palace in Seoul, which was really costly, and this angered a lot of civilians, who felt more of his reconstruction efforts should have been focused on the homes of the civilians rather than the palaces. A second reason is more greater, and it was his approach to foreign affairs. At the time, Joseon Korea was sandwiched between two powerful forces, the Ming Dynasty China, and a semi-agricultural group of people in Northeast Asia called the Jurchens, or better known as the Manchu, spelt M-A-N-C-H-U. Both the Ming and the Manchu bordered Joseon Korea to the north. The Manchu consisted of many tribes and had initially lived under the influence of the Ming dynasty. However, in the late 1500s, a Manchu chieftain by the name of Nor Hatsi, spelt N-U-R-H-A-C-I, united all of the Manchu tribes into one and rebelled against the Ming dynasty beginning a conflict between the Han Chinese Ming and the Manchu. For hundreds of years, as the vassal state of the Ming, Joseon were fiercely loyal and would aid the Ming whenever trouble arose. This was obviously reciprocal, as the Ming also helped Joseon in times of need, for example during the Imjin War when the Japanese invaded. Hence, it was expected and was their duty for the Koreans to help to support the Ming fully to defeat the Manchu. But, Gwanghegun surprised everyone by distancing Korea from the Ming and shifted closer to the Manchu. What? Why? For many, this move was considered betrayal to the Ming Chinese and were puzzled. But to Gwanghegun, this diplomacy shift made perfect sense, and I'll explain why. 
During Guanghegun's reign, the Manchu were united as one and were a rising power in Northeast Asia, whereas the Ming dynasty was going into decline. Guanghegun was fearful that if he allied too close to the Ming and ended up on the losing side, the Manchu would severely punish Joseon Korea. An example of how he realised how strong the Manchu were was during the Battle of Sarahu in 1619, Sarahu spelt S-A-R-H-U. During this battle, a strong 200,000 Ming Chinese army was defeated in less than five days by only 60,000 Manchu. Amongst the casualties was a 10,000 strong Joseon army sent by Guanghegun to support the Ming, which was crushed by the Manchu. Therefore, Guanghegun tried his best to balance both the interests of the Ming and the Manchu. However, this was difficult, and the people around him didn't make things easy for him. The Great Northern Bee, uh, sorry, I meant the Great Northern Faction, supported the king and his diplomacy shift as being pragmatic and vital for Korea's preservation in the face of a strong Manchu force. The other political factions, the Loyalists, however, disagreed. They were pro-Ming and believed it was Joseon's duty and honour to serve the Ming and help them at all times, even if it meant sacrificing their entire country. Guanghegun tried to find middle ground, fully aware that there were political factions and people that did not support his place on the throne in the first place. And so he adopted an appeasement policy towards the Manchu. However, he also refused the Manchu's request to openly rebel against the Ming and still assisted the Chinese on a small scale. Obviously though, this ambiguous behaviour shown by Guanghegun didn't go unnoticed. The Ming dynasty sensed the Joseon's wavering loyalty and criticised Guanghegun's diplomacy policy. For example, in the year 1622, a Ming dynasty inspector general to Korea, Liang Zhiyuan, likened Guanghegun's political stance to <clears throat> a rat looking both ways. From the Chinese point of view then, they already did not support Guanghegun's place on the throne. This was a blow to Guanghegun's rule. You see, as I mentioned earlier, from the Ming Chinese point of view, they already did not support Guanghegun's place on the throne because he wasn't the firstborn son. To give you an idea of how much they didn't like him, the Ming dynasty actually sent four requests to Xionzhou to reject Guanghegun's succession to the throne. Now the Chinese were seeing Guanghegun openly make peace talks with the Manchu and shy away from the Ming. This added to what was already discontent towards Guanghegun. The Chinese were now very angry, and they denounced Guanghegun's actions, which brought shame to Joseon Korea. It didn't matter if a pragmatic diplomacy shift would save Korea from being attacked by the Manchu. This type of shame and dishonour could not be tolerated by the loyalists and many of the other political factions in Korea's upper class. In their eyes, Guanghegun needed to be punished for what he did, 
and he was punished hard for it. On the 14th of March, 1623, the Loyalists, primarily of the radical Western faction of the government, deposed Gwanghegun in a coup. Gwanghegun tried to escape, but was captured and exiled to Jeju Island, where he died in 1641. Many people of the Great Northern faction that had supported Gwanghegun were also stripped of their titles and positions, with some even being killed. The survivors then moved to Australia and started the Great Northern beer brand. I swear I should stop doing these Great Northern jokes. Anyway, the Western faction then installed Yi Jong, a grandson of Sionjo, as the new king, and he became known as the King Injo of Joseon. Injo spelt I-N-J-O. This coup is known in history as the Injo coup, named after the King Injo of Joseon. When Gwanghegun died in 1641, because he was hated so much for betraying the Ming, he was not given a temple name as a result. But, going back to my point I made at the start, what is more important, maintaining one's honour or being practical and pragmatic? Perhaps what happened next in history might help us figure this question out. After Injo became king, he followed the ideals of the Western faction and many of the other aristocrats and adopted a pro-Ming, anti-Manchu policy. This angered the Manchu ruler at the time, Huang Taiji, and in the year 1636, Huang Taiji led the Manchu army, by now known as the Qing, Q-I-N-G, and invaded Korea, defeating the Koreans and forcing King Injo to submit to the Manchus. This officially ended Korea's status as a Ming Dynasty vassal state, and instead, they were now a vassal state of the Manchu. And eight years later, in 1644, the Manchus invaded and took over all of China, making them the top dogs of East Asia. And, I bet, when the Manchu defeated Joseon, I could imagine Gwanghegun at the time, chilling somewhere in Jeju Island, probably eating some shellfish and drinking some great northern beer, uh, I mean soju, and then receiving the news about the invasion, and then saying, Nega kuroke myo bonigo yagi hechana, which means in English, I told you so. Had the Koreans pursued Gwanghegun's policy of appeasing the Manchus, the Manchus most likely would have left them alone. But their anti-Manchu stance during Injo's rule resulted in the Koreans having to submit to them when they could have had the opportunity to be rid of the vassal state status once the Ming dynasty collapsed and rule freely as an independent country. In this scenario then, it was clear that honour and duty failed Korea and Gwanghegun's attempts to appease the Manchus was, in their circumstances, a smart decision. He knew that the Manchus were the growing power and knew that they could not dare go against them. It was a shame though that many of the other people around him did not see it the same way. Before I end this episode, I wanted to say that Gwanghegun's opinion in modern day Korea is varied. 
Some saying that he was a good leader, others saying that he wasn't. For example, his overspending of the palace reconstructions. But in my mind, it's simply injustice for a king like Gwanghegun to have not been honoured with a temple name. Especially when many other kings during the Joseon period were far worse leaders than Gwanghegun, yet they still received a temple name. It goes to show you how important duty and honour was in Korean society at the time, especially in the upper class. Now don't get me wrong, duty and honour is very important, and it's reflective of the integrity and moral standing of an individual. But perhaps, in a complex society like ours today, maybe it's also worth thinking, is self-preservation and pragmatism equally as important? If you were in Gwanghegun's position, what would you have done? If you were that person watching your friend getting beat up by those school bullies, what would you have done? So yeah, that's it. That's the end of the Korean history special episode of King Gwanghegun. I hope you all enjoyed it and learnt something new. Remember, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast follow my Instagram, and visit my website. If you've got any feedback, topic suggestions, want to come to my show to talk about history, or just general comments, please DM me on my Instagram or email me. I'll leave all these details in the description box below. Okay, that wraps up today's episode and the end of some classic Great Northern Beer jokes. I'm not being sponsored by Great Northern Beer, but you should definitely try it out. It's really good. Okay, time to go have some Great Northern Beer now. Thanks everyone for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day or evening, and I'll see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye for now. Bye.